You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 2nd of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. The first days of the trial of Donald Trump's former campaign chairman Paul Manafort. In no sense a disappointment. My guests Robin Lustig and Brian Klass will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Barack Obama's endorsement of Democrat candidates for the November midterms, an audacious plan to charge journalists to get into something normal people would pay to get out of, and are Chinese officials being asked to be too frugal. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Robin Lustig, the journalist and broadcaster, former presenter of The World Tonight on Radio 4, and Brian Class, fellow in comparative politics at the Department of Government, London School of Economics. Welcome both. And we start in the United States with what seems unlikely to be the last instance of an associate of Donald Trump standing trial in front of a jury struggling to keep their faces straight. Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign manager, is on the hook for 18 charges of assorted financial malfeasance including bank fraud and cooking his tax returns, and faces a sentence of up to 30 years in the clink or until Trump pardons him, so possibly nearer 30 minutes. The prosecution has so far been delighting onlookers with details of Mr Manafort's splendid lifestyle. Uh, Robin, first of all, would you spend $15,000 on an ostrich skin jacket? A better question would be, did the ostrich skin jacket you're currently wearing cost anything like $15,000? It's much too hot for an ostrich skin jacket here in London. Uh, I can't imagine spending $15,000 on any single item of clothing at all. I can't imagine doing work that would enable me even to consider spending that kind of money. I mean, it is absolutely mind-boggling. Is it, are you like me in the position of having at least once reading the sort of Manafort evidence, just thinking, man, did I go into the wrong rack? Oh, boy, did I just. <laughs> I mean, really, it is incredible. I mean, my eyes water when I look at those kinds of sums of money that they're talking about. Millions and millions of dollars being paid to people for doing what? Telling them how to run an election? It's crazy. Um, Brian, possibly more seriously, we, we, we can return to chortling at some of the details shortly, but we, we should talk about the serious stuff we have actually learnt. And so far, this is quite early into a trial, which promises to be a, a, a gift that will keep giving for some time yet. Uh, what have we learnt? Well, we've learned that uh, Trump is getting increasingly nervous, uh, and they continue to try to distance uh, themselves from Paul Manafort. I think it's the most astonishing thing when you take a step back and think about what's happening, that Trump is pretending like this person, like, who is this guy? And he was his campaign chairman. I mean, you you don't have this in politics. This is also... uh, I I think we are less than six months away from Donald Trump having claiming to literally having never met Donald Trump Jr. (laughs) And having absolutely absolutely no idea who he is. Ivanka who? Yeah, exactly. All the coffee boys that just keep on piling up, right, in the campaign. Now, I think also the thing that's surprising to me about this is how unsurprising it is that that this this was... a person who has a track record of two decades, three decades of shady business dealings. There were a series of articles written when Paul Manafort joined the Trump campaign with the headline, Donald Trump just hired his next scandal. I mean, we saw this coming. And and yet, 
you know, I think that there was just a lack of attention given to vetting this person right when he joined the campaign because of the flurry of activity around 2016 that we sort of just didn't notice that this highly corrupt individual was in charge of a presidential campaign. But don't you think one of the scandals of this whole thing is that at that time when Mr. Manafort and others were being hired, nobody thought it mattered what his record was. They they thought he was a good guy. They thought he would be able to help. They really didn't care that there were very serious the, questions But n- nobody ask. thought Trump would win. Including Trump's own camp, which is why I guess this sort of stuff didn't seem to matter. Except for that Trump, I mean, Manafort was brought in to sort of corral the delegates at the Republican National Committee. So, so he was joining the campaign at the point where it was highly likely that Trump was going to be one of two possible candidates for president. And so I think, you know, this is something where he, he was steering a ship that was very, very close to, to, you know, docking in the White House. And at the same time, all of these publicly available documents about his business scenes, all of the publicly available links to some seriously shady people who had deep ties to Russia at a time when there was a brewing story about Russian involvement in the election, uh, somehow just didn't register until all of a sudden the, the Mueller investigation gets its sights set on Manafort. This starts to come out and everyone says, wow, this guy is so guilty. I mean, he looks, you know, we, we, we can't judge before. Uh, um, we, we should acknowledge that he denies everything. Yeah. But, but he, you know, he, he just, the, the amount of evidence that's already publicly available is staggering. And that's what really I find interesting. I mean, this is the first time, I think, that uh, Mr. Mueller's evidence has been tested in court. And uh, it's going to be the first of many such occasions. And what we're be already learning is that he has amassed an immense amount of detailed evidence, which is going to unravel in the weeks and months to come. And it will lead, I am convinced, closer and closer to the White House. For now, they can say, Oh, Mr. Manafort, nothing to do with us. You know, he came, he went, blah, blah. He, he was only the campaign manager. Um, on, on that subject, Robin, was Donald Trump's uh, tweeted comparison of Paul Manafort's predicament to that of, as Trump called him, Alphonse Capone, uh, actually helpful, do we think? Uh, how can I put this? I, it's just jaw, another jaw-dropping tweet, isn't it? I mean, what, I, I read that the White House strategy is to say nothing at all about the Manafort trial, uh, nothing to do with us, none of these Charges relate to the campaign. None of these have anything to do with Mr. Trump. And then, of course, Mr. Trump wakes up one morning and hits the old tweet button and off he goes. No, I think Alphonse Capone was probably not the best example to draw. I mean, on a related subject as well, uh, Brian, at least, you know, it, it's another one of Trump's tweets. Uh, he was also wittering about the terrible injustice of Manafort being in jail despite not being convicted for anything. Now, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not it's not in and of itself an unreasonable point, I guess, but it's not uncommon practice for prisoners, especially those perceived to be flight risks, to be remanded in custody awaiting trial. And again, it's it's a question I'm sure I've asked even just you personally a hundred times before. Does Trump actually not understand how anything works? I think that you're onto something with that question. I, I think he just has a fundamental uh, ignorance of a lot of basic facts of government. And I think that, you know, despite ostriches not being able to fly, if you can afford a $15,000 ostrich coat, you can afford to be a flight risk. And so I think it's very right that Manafort is in custody. Um, you know, there, there is there is a bigger point, I think, here with the Manafort trial and this sort of 
you know, just pretend it's not happening uh, strategy the White House has, which is that Manafort was in the meeting in Trump Tower in July 2016 when the the Russians and the Russian affiliates who were offering high-level sensitive information... This is the meeting help. Trump knew nothing about, despite the fact that it was literally happening in the building that he owns. In the building he owned with his campaign manager, his son, and his son-in-law at the same time, right? And, and the, this is why, the reason why I think this is so significant is because there's a huge amount of criminal liability that hinges on this meeting. It, there is not the word collusion in the, in the criminal justice code in the U.S., but there is the word conspiracy. And all the legal experts suggest that this is where Trump is highly vulnerable if he knew about this meeting. And there are some indications from Trump's personal attorney who has claimed that not only did they, did they know about it, but they had a strategizing meeting before it. Rudy Giuliani, Trump's current lawyer, accidentally alluded to that, then tried to walk it back. Donald Trump Jr. in a under oath Senate testimony said that his dad did not know about the meeting. So if he did, this could be the son who's on uh, on the hook for perjury, perjuring himself to That'd Congress. That would be a shame, wouldn't it? But this th- could be. I mean, th- th- this could be Manafort in in there with conspiracy, and it could be Trump himself too. Well, let's move along slightly because I suspect the Manafort trial will delight us further. Uh, but we will stay in the United States and look ahead to November's midterm elections, uh, in which, for obvious reasons, some of which we have just been discussing, onlookers around the world are taking a far greater interest than usual. Uh, for Democrat candidates. No endorsement is more keenly sought than that of former President Barack Obama, who also, for obvious reasons, has acquired a certain cachet among people in America and elsewhere, nostalgic for the time when the White House did not resemble a circus directed by Martin Scorsese. Obama has now endorsed a number of candidates in races across America. Uh, Brian, first of all, from just thinking in terms of American politics in 2018, how big a deal for a Democrat is an endorsement by Obama going to be? Uh, it's it's absolutely huge in primaries, of which there are still many to come. And, you know, to have Barack Obama endorse you before a primary election really does energize Democrats who still view Obama extremely positively. In places where it, there's a Democrat lean, uh, in other words, where places where the Democrats are likely to win or it's a favorable district for Democrats, it's also a huge deal. The real potential liability is in those places in the Rust Belt and in other places where during the Obama administration there were massive gains to the Republicans that Obama actually is not perceived as positive and many of the Democrats in those areas will actually be running against some of his agenda. And the most, uh, I think, striking example of this was while Obama was president, Joe Manchin, who was the the so-called blue dog senator from West Virginia, a Democrat, released a campaign ad in which he took out Obama's cap-and-trade climate change bill put it down range, aimed the scope, and fired a shot into it and literally shot Obama's bill and said, Subtle. yeah, and said, uh, I'm Joe Manchin and I'm running for Senate from West Virginia, right? I mean, that was the entire ad was shooting his own party's president's legislation. So you have this dynamic in the U.S., which is unusual, where sometimes you can run against a president and actually get away with it and, and, and gain from it. Um Robin, Barack Obama's in a, a strange position for an ex-president, isn't he? Because the, there is a, a a convention, and it's it's, and I think it's generally quite a healthy one, and it's generally quite respectably, respectfully rather observed by ex-presidents that when your time's up, your time's up. You sort of write your self-regarding score-settling memoir, um, and and more or less get off the stage. Uh, but. <sighs> 
is that really enough in a, in times such as these? Does Obama need to rethink, or should he rethink, the ex-presidency as a role in public life? I'm not convinced, to be honest. I, I think the, the principle that you described is a good one. Uh, you've done your time, you've had the job, now leave the stage and let the others get on with it. One of the problems, I think, that the Democrats have, and I think it was one of the problems that the Hillary Clinton candidacy had, was that it was backward-looking and not forward-looking. And I think, uh, I mean, I bow to Brian's expertise on American politics. He knows far more about it than I do. But I do think that one of the things the Democrats have failed to do so far is demonstrate to to enough uh, swing voters that they are forward-looking, that they have fresh ideas, that they have fresh candidates. And, and even though, as you say, Barack Obama is still immensely popular among his own base and among uh, liberals and leftists, um, he is a figure of the past. And I think it would be much better if the Democrats could find new candidates, new figures to uh, energise both their own base and, uh, and the voters in the middle. I mean, do you think of the candidates that Obama has in and I think it is 81 that he's endorsed across various races, Brian. It's been... It, those are the candidates he's looking for, the ones that are looking forward, as, as Robin puts it, because the Democrats surely should have learnt in 2016 that though it seems like it would be enough, turning up and saying, I'm not Donald Trump, uh, it turns out isn't. Yeah, I mean, I think... So, uh, two points on this. One is, w with Obama's endorsements, candidates then have, once they're given them, choose how to use them. So some of them will put him front and center in the ads. Uh, some of them will not. So some of them may have a quick, you know, mention of it, and then they'll go to forward-looking politics. I think on the second point about whether or not it's enough to oppose Trump, this is different from 2016, because it's not just... The, the 2018 midterms... Many voters don't know a lot about the candidates for Congress. They just they, their name recognition is low, and so it is very often a referendum on the sitting president in a way that doesn't force you to proactively vote for someone nearly the same way that it was when it was voting for Hillary Clinton. So I think that there will be a lot of mileage the Democrats will get out of being anti-Trump, especially because in states that even either voted for him or flirted with voting for him, his popularity has tanked. So in, in my home state of Minnesota, which he, he lost by 1.8%, his approval rating is around 36%, and the Democrats have a 12-point advantage on what, what's called the generic ballot. Who would you rather have, a generic Democrat or Republican? So you know, I, I think that the, the endorsements will matter. But they will be downplayed by some and they will be played up by others. And that will be a decision that Obama, I think, will respect. That's where he will sit on the sidelines and not inject himself. He'll just say the endorsement's there. Use it if you want. I mean, to ask uh, just quickly a, a slightly similar question a different way, would any sane Democrat candidate want Hillary Clinton's endorsement? Yeah, I think so. I think that, I mean, in, in the blue in the blue districts, in highly blue districts, she still has huge approval ratings. Um, Lest so, we forget she did actually win the popular yeah, vote. Yeah, and, and, and I think that, you know, despite the, the arguments around the flaws of her candidacy, which are, are certainly valid, uh, among Democrats, she is highly popular still. I mean, Robin, does, does America right now strike you as a country which has a de facto opposition leader? Because it is it is one of the... I suppose it seems curious if you grew up in the United Kingdom, or indeed as I did in Australia, that there isn't uh, a permanent opposition leader, as there is in the Westminster system. That's right. I mean, you, you, you do have uh, senior figures in Congress, of course, who if they are... If, if there is a majority of the opposing party, then they become de facto opposition leaders. It's not the case at the moment. I mean, one of the peculiarities of the American system is that the parties don't really have a figurehead leader when they're out of office. 
Um, so the Dem- who, who's the leader of the Democrats at the moment? It's not Hillary Clinton. It's not Barack Obama. They don't have a party leader. The figure doesn't exist until they nominate a candidate for the next presidential election. So it is odd. Uh, the opposition is in Congress. If Congress is in the hands of the same party whose candidate won the White House, then you don't have a de facto opposition. Well, on that happy thought, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Robin Lustig and Brian Class. Coming up next, how much would you pay to attend an EU summit? Possibly more to the point, how much more would you pay not to? Summer is finally here, and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work, and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city. A guide to breathing in and lightening up. And a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns. While in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot, we tuck into some northern Spanish grub, and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Robin Lustig and Brian Klaas. And let us look towards Brussels, where there has been a chorus of harumphing from our Belgian colleagues at the news that they will have to pay €50 each to get in to cover the next summit of European leaders. And no, I will not be rising above the temptation to suggest that the EU could probably charge twice that again to allow journalists to get out of the next summit of European leaders. The charge is being levied by Belgium's National Security Authority, who want local hacks to pay for the security checks uh, being made on them. Um, this is hilarious, Robin. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it depends on your sense of humour. I have attended a great number of EU summits. Uh, I am very grateful that uh, I will never have to attend another one. So, I, yeah, hope, I mean, that's I what I mean. This is insult to injury, isn't well, it? Well, it is. But I think, I mean, it's not that unusual, it has to be said. There are many, many countries around the world where if, as a foreign journalist, you turn up and say, I need accreditation, they say it'll cost you. And it can cost anything from $100 to $200 and going up. The interesting thing about this Belgian thing, it only applies to journalists who are based in Belgium. Indeed. Um, which is not that many, actually. So they're not going to raise a huge amount of money. They are upsetting a great number of people. And there's an important principle at stake. The uh, EU summits are ostensibly held in order to further the interests of the 500 million citizens of the European Union. The press are there to keep an eye on them on behalf of those same 500 million citizens, to charge them for the privilege. And as you have alluded, Andrew, it is not the greatest pleasure in the world to cover an (laughs) EU summit. It really is to add insult to injury. No, I wouldn't pay and no, I won't go. Uh, I mean, does it strike you, just to follow that up, Robin, as as anything actually sinister? Or is this this just bureaucratic nonsense? Oh, I think it's it's bureaucratic nonsense. This is a 
security agency who is fed up that every six months they have to trawl through the records of all the Belgium-based journalists applying for credentials to check that they're not terrorists. And they say, <laughs> if we're going to have to do that, then they can damn well pay for it. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's not going to help their budget at all. It's a way, I suppose, of seeking to discourage uh, a few people whom they regard as hangers-on. The only people it'll make any difference to are freelancers or people working for very, very small organisations. I used to work for the BBC. I mean, the BBC doesn't care whether it has to pay an extra 50 euros to cover an EU summit or not, nor does any other major international news organisation. It, it, it affects freelancers, and I suppose the security people in Belgium would rather there were fewer freelancers rather than more attending EU summits. I mean, 50 euros, though, is still 50 euros. That's nearly half my licence fee going on, on paying to get some poor hack into an EU summit. Yeah, well... <laughs> uh, Brian, have you ever found yourself being charged money to attend something that, frankly, you were resenting having to go to at all in the first place anyway? I think there's... Uh, when, when you apply for visas... There is an inverse relationship between the desirability of going to a place and the cost <laughs> of going to truth? a place. Um, so the most expensive visas I've had are the places that are least least uh, desirable to visit. I, I think on this story, though, it, it is extremely stupid politically because the EU has an opportunity right now more than ever uh, to become the beacon of some of these ideals because they're under attack across the Atlantic. So, you know, when you have... Donald Trump calling the press fake news, the enemy of the people. And then you have the EU going in and their story about the press is we're going to charge people. It's, you know, it's, it's just, it's so absurd, especially given how much there has been an, a ramping up of attacks on journalism and, and access uh, across the world at the same time, which is just very frustrating. And, uh, you know, as Robin said, it will be a negligible amount of money. It's so it's just counterproductive. And I hope stupid. it doesn't give Mr. Trump ideas. He might start <clears throat> wanting to charge correspondents to come to the White House briefings. Uh, he he actually that that would be just like him but i mean i i can also imagine him doing the thing where he charges money but you get to come into the white house briefing but perhaps you get like a, a like a donald trump tie as well or, or, <laughs> which you would then be billed for yeah, well exactly <laughs> uh, but but i i did want to draw upon your expertise of having attended a great many of these things mm. uh, robin and one of the one of the reasons that i never really wanted myself to be a kind of uh, i guess news reporter is a, a morbid horror of ever having been being a, compelled to attend uh, such an occasion what what's the absolutely most excruciatingly dreary summit you've ever fi found yourself confined to? Oh, the uh, it wasn't actually an EU summit. It was the Copenhagen Climate Summit. Uh, I can't remember what it was, about six or seven years ago. That was the ago. one where everything went horribly wrong. Everything went horribly wrong, from the weather, which was horrendous, to the uh, <laughs> organisation, which was gruesome, to the preparation of the summit itself, which was abysmal. I mean, it was a disaster. I think there were something like 197 governments represented there. It was, um, I have to find a polite way of saying this, but it was a mess, that summit, and it was absolutely awful. It was in a convention centre on the outskirts of the city. It was difficult to get to. Uh, the public transport wasn't great because there was snow. You would have thought that snow in Denmark wasn't that unusual. In fact, it is quite unusual, apparently. It was in December, this summit. It was ghastly in every single possible respect. See, I, I, I came up as a rock journalist, so the, the, the equivalent would have been festivals. Um, right. and, and, yeah, Woodstock 1994, the the attempt to refloat the original uh, it can still give me that like night sweats and a thousand yard stare when I we won't I, mention I start, the toilets. I start thinking uh, basically the entire site uh, was a, a toilet by about mid afternoon day okay. two. Uh, 
Anyway, uh, moving, <laughs> moving rapidly on. moving rapidly along uh, to China, uh, where it remains an open question whether President Xi Jinping's anti-corruption crusade is an actual anti-corruption crusade or an apparatus for the dispensary of political opponents. Either way, it's getting results. It has emerged that this year alone 37,000 officials have been punished to some degree for violating Xi's frugality code. This is an eight-point list, which I have here written down in front of me. Uh, it forbids excessive general with state funds, including paying for such fripperies as excessive banqueting over florid floral arrangements or days out. And according to one local report, among the consequences has been the closure of 200 golf courses. Now, Brian, I would argue that that is reason enough to applaud this initiative right there. Uh, anything that reduces the number of golf courses in the world uh, is an objective good. Um, but what do we think, basically, just of, of these eight commandments? Are they actually a... Uh, is there a model here for good, frugal, uh, sensible governance? Well, I, I think it's overly prescriptive from what I've, I've read about it. And I think that you can get into, um, I mean, not only do you, can you use this for political purposes because it's subjective and open to you know, uh, interpretation of your enemies, um, but it's also, if you end up getting this straitjacket that people don't have the flexibility to work with, you can actually have worse outcomes, even though you have a positive you know, sort of idea or you're trying to make progress in terms of cracking down on graft. And the story that came came to mind for me was when I was working in Minnesota politics, uh, people talked about how when there were stricter ethics codes about whether you could spend money on food or drink, uh, Democrats and Republicans before that time, before those ethics codes ex existed, actually would, would talk and socialize. And then after everything was out of pocket, even, you know, even the, the reducing from 15 to, to $50 or something like that, um, they stopped talking and there became far less bipartisanship. So some people have argued that overly restrictive ethics codes end up creating counterproductive outcomes that actually you would be willing to pay for if it meant more bipartisanship or more collaboration between agencies or whatever. So it's, it's about striking a balance. I have to say, I don't find it an entirely convincing argument. I mean, it's, it's quite a good attempt to justify using taxpayers' money to buy beer and pizzas. <laughs> I mean, um, coming back to EU summits, I still have in the back of my kitchen cupboard a coffee mug adorned with the EU flag, you know, it's a blue mug with gold stars on it, which was a gift at one EU summit which I attended. Did What's you only... declare this gift to the appropriate authorities, Robin? I think it might have slipped my mind. This is On the other hand, I've never this been... Is, this is scandalous. <laughs> I've never been a public official. But, you know, it is not uncommon... I can, I can, as, see, as the, a... I can see the Daily Mail getting 1,200 words out of this <laughs> you tomorrow. You think I should never have admitted exactly. it? Exactly. It's a very, very... Awful coffee mug. It's bad. I, I don't think that's any excuse, okay. Robin. Right. Th well, I, I put my there's a principle up. at stake. I, thin end of the I, also, I also have quite a number of shoulder bags, which, uh, you know. Where, where uh, does this depravity end? Let's not go there. <laughs> like, I mean, what, what, what else have you trousered while, work, while working today, abroad as an emissary of the national broadcaster? Uh, I won't tell you about the private yacht. But, you know, is there a lot of skin doggerel? Do you know the old doggerel about why there's no need ever to bribe? There is no journalist. need to bribe or twist, thank God, the British journalist. When you can see what Some, unbribed... Um, blah, 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 blah. I mean, the basic point is there's no when, need to when, bribe a journalist because you'll when, do it for nothing. When one sees what the man will do unbribed, there's no occasion to. Exactly. That's the goes. one. Yeah. Um... <laughs> 
poetry. I'm yeah, I, I, I am. However, I am scandalised uh, by this admission, Robin, of your your collection of. I shall of, bring you the coffee of, mug. Of, of we can share bags, it. Andrew. Of shoulder bags and coffee mugs, because I, I was just going to say, uh, you know, one journalist to another, we are we are famous as a profession for our uh, our absolute uh, rigorous uh, honesty, especially when dealing with things such as expenses. Yes. Um, would this code work well for journalism? Do you think should it be applied to us? This sort of stuff. Um, individuals do not publish books and speeches in a public manner and do not send congratulatory letters, congratulatory messages, no inscriptions. That's number seven on mm. the list of commandments. The, look, um, there are ethics codes that journalists these days are obliged to uh, adhere to, much more so than there used to be. But there is a big difference. Journalists aren't public officials. And public officials are, I think, rightly expected to behave in a way which is uh, in keeping with the job that they are being paid to do. Uh, journalists simply similarly have to abide by ethics codes and I think it's right that they don't squander their employer's money uh, which by and large these days they don't. They used to, sure enough, but they really do <laughs> to the same extent, let's say. Brian, these these eight points here, uh, how much fun do you think you would have applying them to Donald Trump's cabinet? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I don't think... I mean, they have buildings that are used as leverage. I mean, this is a... It's not even the same universe. But in the U.S. context, I do remember when I was an intern, when I was an undergraduate in the U.S. Senate, uh, one company sent... Just as, a, you know, after they had met with the senator I worked for, they sent like 30 pounds, uh, you know, th- or 15 kilograms of candy. It was a candy company. And they had to basically report it, bag it, and send it back and say, no, thank you. And it was just this, you know, this hilarious moment because, you're like, are you really going to change legislation over a few candies. But, there, you know, the principle is supposed to be ironclad. So, you know, we diligently ended up paying to ship this very heavy candy back to the producer. Um, and, and it was sort of a, a moment where I thought, OK, well, they take this stuff seriously. Now, under the Trump administration, they make a mockery of it in a huge way every day uh, on much bigger scales. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the most useless gift that I was ever given as a visiting journalist was a NATO summit in Bucharest, of all places, where the visit journalists were given a bottle of Romanian wine, which was a perfectly nice thing to get. But of course, you can't take a bottle of wine onto a plane with you because glass bottles are confiscated as you go through security. So they gave us the bottle of wine one day and took it away from us the next. Well, on, on that abject note, I, I will close the show by, by sharing my own shoulder bag shame, uh, Robin, since you went there first. I do have now, it occurs to my clearly lapsing memory, a very nice one given to me by the, the uh, government of San Marino last year. I mean, it's, it's a shoulder bag. It says, it's admission time. It, it says Republic of San Marino. Uh, and on that uh, confessional note, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Robin Lustig and Brian Klaas, thanks for joining us. The show was produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Anna Suweka. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. More on the day stories on The Daily at 2200. I'm back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.